Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 23rd, 2013, and my guest is Amrita Narlikar. She's a reader in international political, political economy at the Department of Politics and International Studies and the director of the Center for Rising Powers, all at the University of Cambridge. She's written a number of books and numerous articles on international trade and international political economy. Amrita, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you very much for having me. We're going to talk about a number of issues in the area of international trade and trade policy related to articles you've written recently that we'll link to. I want to start with fair trade and the article you wrote in Foreign Affairs with uh, Dan Kim. What is fair trade and and the fair trade movement? What are they about? What are they trying to accomplish? Sure. Um so uh, fair trade, um, and we'll use capital letters here when we talk about fair trade. Um, a, a product is granted a fair trade label once its producers have met a list of social, economic, and environmental requirements. And the stated purpose of the fair trade movement is to give economic security to producers in developing countries so, and usually these are producers of unprocessed commodities, such as fruits, live animals, minerals, by requiring companies and consumers to pay a premium on the market price. Here in the United States, I think most consumers encounter it at Starbucks, the coffee chain, where they tell their consumers that they're a particular style of coffee, a particular flavor of coffee is fair trade. And that's supposed to reassure people that the people who picked it um, or grew it got a decent wage. But we don't know really what that – when you say that to be certified, you have to pass a certain number of hurdles, uh, we don't know exactly how much those amounts are, right? I assume it varies by country or is there any kind of general standard that that the movement tries to – and the certifiers try to uh, to establish? So um, there have been quite a lot of studies already about – how there are problems in the certification process and how the process can be very expensive for poor farmers in particular countries. And there have also been some interesting studies on, on how only a small proportion of the premium, so 1% to 2% of the retail price, according to some studies, that actually reaches the poor farmer in the developing world. But these are all micro-level questions. And our our paper was actually trying to draw attention and get people to start thinking about the macro level. So it wasn't about, so it really wasn't about what are the, what are the problems with the certification process and how difficult is it for farmers to actually get certification. Um, we said, let's assume that all that's unproblematic and there are other people who've been, who are working on this and they're doing good work on it. Uh, we want to look at, is fair trade having an effect at the macro level? And the reason, and the reason why we were so intrigued by this question was partly what you, what when you, when you was partly related to what you just started out with. You know, when you were talking about Starbucks and how people buy that cup of coffee and feel reassured. And we're seeing this very much so across. Um, it, it, the, the fair trade movement is quite big in the UK, and so we're seeing we, we have fair entire cities that do fair trade, right? Colleges will have fair trade products. Students are really committed to the fair trade label. So we wanted to ask the question, are there any interesting macro level consequences of fair trade that people aren't actually thinking about? So the study isn't really about the micro level, but it's about the macro. Well, go ahead. So what are the, what are the macro issues? Okay. So, our argument was twofold. First, that fair trade deflects attention from the real long-term solution, which is free trade. And second, that 
the fair trade movement runs the risk of fragmenting the world market on agriculture and depressing the wages of the non-fair trade farmer. So that was one of the interesting things that was a result of our of our study, which is that people are not really thinking about what's happening to the non-fair trade farmer, non-fair trade products. So shall I tell you a little bit about the first argument and the second argument? Yeah, let's start with this. Let's go in reverse order. Uh, what would be the uh, the impact on the non-fair trader? Okay, sure. Worker. Okay, so let's just let's just. So the um, the big so we have. Let me just let me just start off by saying first, like, what is the problem that the fair trade movement is trying to resolve? Okay. And then I can tell you about what the problem will be for the non-fair trade worker in the developing country. Okay. Uh, so the root of the problem that the fair trade movement is that 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 it's trying to address is the fact that ag the agricultural commodities market is volatile and distorted. Right. And just how distorted this market is can be seen from the very large volume of subsidies doled out by OECD governments to domestic farmers. You said so, you said OECD governments, yeah. yeah, which are typically the nations of Europe and um, United exactly. States. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And and so, just as an example, in 2011, OECD governments doled out 252 billion dollars worth of subsidies to their farmers. And the problem with these subsidies then is that it becomes very difficult for even super efficient farmers from the developing world to compete with these subsidized products. And so the, what these so-called ethical consumers want to do is they want to try and provide access to the needy farmers from the south. And one of the reasons, and this is, this is the idea behind the fair trade movement as well, that farmers from poor countries find it very difficult to get access to our markets in the developed world. So we have um, and 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 we try and give them better market access via the fair trade movement. And here's the problem to go back to the question that you had asked, what is the what is the impact that this has on the non fair trade producers? So the idea for the fair trade movement is that we pay a premium on the right, on the market price to the fair trade producers. Regular trade producers do not enjoy this this market premium. And so they would likely end up with significantly lower wages. And second, if we have a guarantee of above market price for the fair trade portion of producers, this would likely lead to increased production, resulting in lower overall commodity prices and ultimately decreased profits for all regular trade producers who do not enjoy the price guarantee. So chances are that the small farmer producing fair trade coffee does benefit from the fair trade movement, but we do need to also think about the non-fair trade producer of coffee who is going to be affected by this fair trade price. And fair trade subsidies right now are just not on the scale of government subsidies for agriculture. But they are unarguably growing very rapidly. So in the UK alone, fair trade certified products recorded a staggering in percentage increase in just one decade between 2001 and 2011 we saw an increase of over 2,000%. Well, but so, they started at a very low level. So Yeah, no, this, this is true. This is true. But the, the like even, even anecdotally in my time here at Cambridge, I've seen colleges transforming into embracing fair trade products. No, it's definitely very popular among uh, a bunch of folks. Um, and I think the argument – I want to go back to your argument about uh, that this is – that the idea of this is to is to offset the subsidies from the developed world. Um, it, it seems so. Your argument is is that because of these large subsidies, the developed world uh, undeveloped farmers in, in in undeveloped countries, poor countries, have trouble competing, and that these are very small 
relative to the uh, to the subsidies that that are being offered by uh, the developed world. But it seems to me that given that the program's growing, and given that uh, these farmers who are receiving the payments already have access, it's not an issue of. It seems to me that the fair trade movement isn't worrying about access; it's just worrying about compensation. It's saying. These poor farmers, they don't make a lot of money in, in, in these poor countries where they grow these commodity products, and we just need to give them a, a living a – living, a better standard of living. So to me, it's the equivalent of a minimum wage being adopted through the commodity price. Isn't that right? Except that these are products that we are actually importing. So we are actually – so it's not just that we are giving them a slight increase in price and that's where it stops. We're not, it's not an aid. It, it's, it, it's not a system of aid. It's a trade system. Right, but but isn't the idea simply to reward farmers in poor countries with prices higher than the market price so that they have higher incomes? Uh, that, that, that is correct. That is but correct. I agree. I understand your point. Your point is it's not just a welfare check. It's a welfare exactly. check through the price of the product, which yes. which offsets some of the benefit because it discourages people from, from potentially from buying it who otherwise might. So I don't understand the argument you're making that that it's going to flood the market – Lower the price and hurt non-farm, uh, non-free, non-fair trade farmers. It seems to me the bigger problem is the competition among farmers to get access to the fair trade label is going to is the equivalent of rent seeking. It's going to encourage them to expend resources and and spend time and and effort to to try to get access to this fair trade label. But is there any evidence that that it's limited? Is it? What what are the restrictions that make it hard to get the fair trade label? If I'm a, a farmer, a, you know, a coffee farmer in Kenya, or a small farmer of something else in a poor country, is it hard to get fair trade access? Uh, yes. Well, we have we haven't done direct research in this ourselves, so this is uh, this is based on secondary sources. But yes, that 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 has been one of the arguments that it is difficult for small farmers to get access to the certification process and it's also an expensive process so you have cooperative movements that can help but they only go so far but you're the point that you're making the point that you're making about how this would result in competition between farmers for access to this label too is 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 an important one and this is also one that we've made in the paper and here it's also where what we were what we were trying to do was to conduct a thought experiment and see how what would happen if this if current trends continue and if the fair trade fair trade label continues to attract as much uh, um, as much popular support as much consumer support as it is already doing and one of the oh, one one of the effects that we could we would expect to see is also a shift by farmers uh, from those products which do not enjoy fair trade certification. So basic crops, for example, wheat and corn and rice and so forth. And a shift to cash crops where you do have uh, relatively abundant fair trade labels, just coffee and tea and fruits, which would allow them to bring in income for certification. So we would expect in this instance, just in the competition between products which are fair trade and non-fair trade, and also farmers who are doing fair trade farming and non-fair trade farming competition between them, uh, we would expect to see some adverse consequences along these lines. It seems to me the biggest adverse consequences would be for the consumers of some products in those poorer countries. So yeah. if you if – you, uh, if some of – Domestic production isn't traded, uh, and it's used only for domestic consumption, and that becomes yeah. less attractive because it's not getting this fair trade subsidy. Uh, people would shift out of that. Prices would go up in the home country, and that would be punishing the consumers in that poor country. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. Well, let's turn to the basic issue, though that that you that which your first reason in the macro area, which I find very interesting. I'm, I'm a big supporter of free trade. But it's not obvious to me that um, if we opened up trade to uh, – if, if trade were freer, we got rid of some of the subsidies to agricultural products in the West and the developed countries, uh, it's not obvious that that's going to help uh, poor farmers. So I, 
even though I'm not a fan of fair trade, I actually have no problem with people who want to pay a premium for their coffee. I, I do have a problem intellectually if it actually doesn't help them, which is part of what we're talking about. But yeah. but I'm more I'm asking the separate question, which is that if we went to this more ideal system, which you're advocating, which I'm sympathetic to, which is uh, no subsidies in the West farm uh, products, uh, how would that help uh, poor farmers around the world? Is it, it's not obvious to me that it would. Sure. Um, and sort of the very, the, 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 the very straightforward logic behind this for us is as follows. Uh, it's been, it has been very difficult for uh, even reasonably efficient uh, farming economies such as Brazil uh, to compete uh, with the U.S. and the EU on um, on agriculture uh, because of the massive subsidies that their farmers enjoy on this, even if they might not necessarily have the best comparative advantage on these products. To say nothing of, you know, the least developed countries or much poorer countries or countries like India, where you have small scale farming, uh, where there may be some advantages in agriculture if we could have a rationalization of the agricultural system. Uh, and then these countries would potentially be able to compete in the international market. But there's absolutely no way they can do so right now with the kinds of subsidies that are in place. So removing these subsidies won't immediately result. It, it, it will immediately benefit certain countries like Brazil and, and Argentina, which do have incredibly efficient systems of farming. And they would be able to corner uh, the bits of the market that open up as a result. But uh, also for countries which have been unable to have sustainable farming, mainly because of the competition coming from uh, US and European agricultural products, they too would be able to develop their comparative advantage once these subsidies are removed. And I just want to read, I want to relate this point to the fair trade point again, because like the idea for the fair trade movement is here are these distortions, there are problems of market access. Uh, this is one small way in which we can help by buying fair trade products. But if the problems are actually subsidies, then it seems pretty ironic and inefficient to counteract one subsidy with another, rather than just address the source of the problem, which is the original government subsidies. Well, I guess the argument would be that if the political system of the West is structured so that it rewards farmers, which it is, unfortunately, uh, they have a lot of political power in the United States. They have a lot of political power in Japan. They obviously have a lot of political power in Europe. And as you mentioned, they're getting about $250 billion uh, – that's annual, I assume uh, – yeah. across the OECD. Um, it's not surprising to me that we'd go to a different solution. My, my complaint – is that both solutions to me seem to be ineffective. So let me make my argument and you can react to it. If we got rid of subsidies in the United States and Europe and Japan, which I'm all for, by yeah. the way, I'd love to see um, market prices for farm products. They might, there might be a little more volatility, but I think we'd yeah. be devoting a lot fewer resources to agriculture in the West. So the corn industry, just to take a dramatic example, would be dramatically yeah. different in the United States and the, the, the price of corn would be higher in the world, which would be good, yeah. and that means corn farmers in poor countries would be able to compete better, as you point out. What's not obvious to me is that that's going to raise the wages and incomes of people in uh, very poor countries that have uh, fairly undeveloped labor markets and lots of opportunities for farming and not so many opportunities elsewhere. So the supply of labor to the farm is fairly elastic, meaning that shifts into demand for farm products don't change the uh, the price that much in those countries, and the wages don't excuse me don't change the wages of farm workers in those countries. And I would assume that if we made it more lucrative to be a corn farmer in a, in in Africa, that more people would become corn farmers, but they wouldn't make a lot more money unless they have higher alternatives. And if they don't have better alternatives, they're still going to stay poor. So it seems to me that neither. Right now, free trade – free trade is great. I'm all for it. It's good for uh, the, the general wealth and, and well-being of the world. It creates good incentives. It gets the government out of things. It reduces the incentive for lobbying and special favors and uh, exploitation of consumers. 
uh, that's all great, but it's not obvious it's going to make the poor farmers of Africa or South America or Asia uh, well off. Okay, I, 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 I see where you're coming from. I have two, I have two responses. Um, so to the first, to, to the, you, before you gave me your argument, you made uh, the point about how that's the nature of the political system in the OECD countries. That's a nature, you know, that's where the power lies. We have all these lobbies, et cetera, et cetera. But we have come very close to a deal on agriculture uh, where the U.S. had agreed to cap its subsidies in um, the 2008 Doha talks. Uh, the, Do I, the Doha talks being uh, the World yeah, Trade the Organization. World yeah. Right. Right. And um, and the U.S. Uh, and that was a that was a very significant concession coming from the U.S. And one of the reasons why they were able to make this concession was because uh, food prices were very high at the time, so they would be able to justify the capping of the subsidies to their farmers. And for various reasons, which we can go into later, uh, this was a deal that was turned down by some of the developing countries. But it's but my my the reason why I'm raising this point is to is is to indicate that it's not quite as impossible to get a deal on agriculture. I accept, I accept that point. I accept that point, and I, I agree. Yeah. Hope springs eternal, and I'm, I'm optimistic that someday the American people will rise up angrily and uh, especially in tight budget times uh, to make the point that rich farmers don't need to be um, uh, subsidized by the average taxpayer. And I, I don't know what the dynamics are in Europe, but certainly in the United States, it's imaginable that that day could come. Yeah. Uh, it, it, but it – it's hard, but yeah, it could come. I'm all for that. I think we should fight for that. I agree. And then my, and then to now to go back to the argument that you made, and it, it is, it is, an, it's an important argument. It's a persuasive argument. But the way, uh, the way that uh, I, I think the the mechanisms whereby these changes in market prices would affect farmers in different countries would vary very much from country to country. But I'll just give you a, uh, one. I'll just give you one hypothetical example. So right now, in the Indian case, we have uh, we have very small scale farming. It's not a very sustainable form of farming. Uh, the farmers have, can a lot of the small scale farmers can barely survive. Um, if if there was a realistic chance that there that the that the Indian farmer could get access to Western markets, uh, we are we would see more investment from the government to have more land reform to facilitate transition of this very very small and unsustainable farmers to other areas of activities. We would have larger scale farming, um, and in this way we would have more efficient forms of farming, and that would allow farmers to make. Uh, to exploit uh, the benefits emerging from the decrease in subsidies. So it's not going to happen overnight, but it is one mechanism whereby I would begin to see it happening in the Indian case. Yeah, I just think the, the more important issue is the education level and skill set of uh, the average 25-year-old in the, in the poor part, in the, in the bottom billion. If we think about the Paul Collier's bottom billion, the, yeah. the billion people that live in abject oh, yeah. poverty. And I think when Americans buy fair trade coffee, they think they're trying, they're helping those people. And I don't, I don't think they are. I mean, I agree with your basic point. I don't think fair trade does very much for the people who are desperately poor um, for a variety of reasons, but I'm not sure free trade is going to help them much either. And I think the I think the main argument for free trade has to lie elsewhere in the short run. In the long run, uh, you know, the movement of capital across international borders, the movement of, of ideas across right. international borders are going to definitely have an impact on the impoverished people of the world. And the nations that have closed their borders are punishing their own citizens and those that are more open or have a better chance of – and we see this dramatically in the countries that have opened to international activity. I'm just not sure that, that, that eliminating um, – OECD subsidies to agriculture, the, the richer countries getting rid of their subsidies to farmers are going to help poor farmers very much. Well, I mean, I guess you just need to, I, I guess you just need to speak to a Brazilian negotiator to see and hear them 
give a very eloquent account about how much their country would benefit from uh, the removal of subsidies. Well, their country might benefit. It's a question of whether the poor farmers will benefit. It could be the landowners will benefit. It could be the you know consumers right. will benefit. I, I, or, right, right, right. So right. That, that's my issue. I don't, I don't have any problem right. arguing no. that free trade makes us all wealthier. I think it does, but I'm not sure the, the problems of the poorest of the poor right. are going to be helped much. Right, and um, and I mean, so and even when even when you and I argue that free trade make you know free trade is good, and it helps a a whole lot, it, it it helps everyone in different sorts of ways. We're not making the argument that there is no there that there are no that we are even under conditions of free trade, we won't need mechanisms of redistribution of wealth within countries. Well, I'm not so, sure. I'm not sure that's true either. I mean, I, I, I'm not. My, my point is, I'm making a different point. I'm, I'm arguing that access to capital, yeah, human and physical, are what change people's uh, standard of living. It's what yeah. changed in the United States. It's what's changed it, yeah. changing it in China and India. I don't yeah. want redistribution. I don't think it helps very much to help the poor that way. But. Um, I think all I'm saying is that the trade, the aspect of free trade that helps the poor is capital, human capital, physical capital and ideas. And the um, commodity prices is not going to be by itself not going to help very much. Okay. Yeah. So let me just go back to the Indian example again here. Uh, I just having freer trade would be a very important step towards improvement in the life of the poor in India, but there are, but that would certainly not lead to the nirvana of development. And so, for example, even after we have these opportunities available, it's extremely difficult for the Indian farmer, the poor Indian illiterate farmer to transition into anything else when there are huge problems with Indian industry and infrastructure. Yeah. And they can't, they can't, for example, go into computing. Right. So, um, there, there, there. In in this case, there is no substitute for a, a good deal of government commitment to building infrastructure, to improving literacy literacy standards, to improving educational standards, and so forth, which would allow these types of transitions to take place. So, free trade in agriculture in itself isn't automatically going to improve the life of the poor farmer in India. But having that opportunity will be a very vital first step to lead to all these other steps. That's the argument I'm making. Okay, that's I like that. Let's um, let's move on to a uh, a different issue which you've written about recently, uh, which uh, this is drawing on an article you wrote with uh, Jagdish Bhagwati, who is scheduled to be a guest on Econ Talk in the very near future. You really? wrote. You wrote about the uh, tragedy in Bangladesh. So talk about what happened there and what the response was and why you think that was not the right response. Right. And so um, there have been a series of uh, very serious accidents, fires in uh, Bangladeshi factories. And the uh, the most recent – uh, the most recent occurrence, I think, was in May that attracted a lot of media attention. But that wasn't a one-off event. There have been other factory fires which have taken an, uh, multiple lives in Bangladesh. And so these are very these are very serious tragedies. Um, but in the article with Jagdish Bhagwati, uh, the argument that we were making is how the reaction in the West to these tragedies has been rather misguided. And so the reactions have been several. So we've seen self-flagellation by consumers and blame games by trade unions, which point the finger at those companies that buy cheap garments from Bangladesh's factories. We've seen the EU saying that it wants future trade agreements to accord a much more prominent place to health and safety considerations. We've seen the US um, that has suspended Bangladesh from enjoying uh, the generalized system of preferences until its safety standards are improved. And we've seen um, also a response by various uh, 
European and some American brands to the refrain of the high cost of cheap goods. And these brands have agreed to accept responsibility for safety lapses in Bangladeshi-owned and Bangladeshi-managed garment factories. And should I, should I just give you the arguments we've made against this? Yeah, but before you do, just explain uh, just one piece of technical language when you said – the United States has uh, suspended Bangladesh access to the generalized system of preferences. Basically, that means that stuff that used to come in with no tariffs and no quotas now is is subject to some exactly. restriction, right? Exactly. As a way of, of punishing, uh, in, in theory, a way of, of punishing uh, them in order to get them to change their ways. Uh, but in the meanwhile, uh, punishing American consumers as well exactly. as as well as Bangladeshi workers and and producers, at least in the short run. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I think that's a very important point that you know we the entire system, the entire trading system, is founded on this very mercantilist value, right? And that I'm denying I'm denying market access to your products. But what is often forgotten is the really important point that you've just raised. That you also produce, that you also punish your own consumers. Correct, but what's so? Given those responses, which I think would strike most listeners as reasonable, um, that is uh, worrying about where you get your clothes from, maybe not buying from the cheapest producer if they are prone to fires, taking responsibility for the safety of factories, making health and safety uh, requirements in uh, future trade agreements. Why do you think those are the wrong responses? Okay. So I would say there are there are four points worth keeping in worth keeping in mind about this when we do read reports about such tragic incidents and when we witness reactions in the developed countries. So first, very importantly, let's not forget uh, that the brands the various companies that have been getting so much of the blame, the various Western firms that have been getting so much of the blame, uh, by buying garments from these locally owned factories, and I again emphasize locally owned, so they were outsourcing, uh, have provided an engine for remarkable improvements in the well-being of Bangladeshi workers. So the garment industry in Bangladesh has nurtured 4 million jobs, most of which have gone to women. So this is a major driver for growth. Now, what labor unions uh, in the West are doing is that they're pressurizing suppliers to increase wages in these in, in, in these factories, in these factories with hazardous conditions. And the problem, the problem is that if we pressurize suppl- uh, suppliers to increase wages prematurely, we will be depriving countries like Bangladesh of their comparative advantage. And, they, and we will be rendering Bangladesh's products uncompetitive in global markets. And do, you have, do you have a measure of what's happened to, the, to wages in, in those factories over the last few years or standard of living in Bangladesh? I, I don't have the figures to hand right now, I'm afraid. But, uh, well, we'll try to find some, some, some yeah. links for that. Yeah. Um, and then it's also the, the the third point that I think it's that, that that I think it's really important to bear in mind is that it's very likely that brands that have been guilt tripped into accepting responsibility for Bangladeshi units over which they actually have no control will quietly seek to move to locations with better governance. And since the possibility of future fires cannot be ruled out, and the possibility of being tainted is very real, why would why would firms take this risk? And Disney has already announced such a move. So again, it's the Bangladeshi workers that are going to suffer the most from such exit strategies that our, uh, that our consu- so-called ethical consumerism and what our trade unions are pushing for would lead them to suffer. And then finally, um, just uh, this is a point that... Uh, I think Professor Bhagwati has made elsewhere as well, which is that uh, garment industries in Vietnam and China 
have not ex- have experienced few fires, even though unions do not exist there. So we're not against unionization per se, but unionization does not seem to be a necessary condition for safety. And nor is it that trade unions are suddenly going to turn into health and safety experts. So uh, yeah, it seems yeah. it seems to me that the there's some natural forces here that that some of these responses are ignoring. I mean, for example. Uh, if, if your factory is prone to fire, it makes it harder to attract workers. Of course, if your workers don't have many alternatives, they may be stuck working there anyway. But that's probably not true of every single one of them. Right. That puts some competitive pressure on the on the factory owners to be more careful. And that's the natural uh, mechanism that doesn't have to be monitored or in, or enforced with any resources. Right. That's why it's it's such an attractive mechanism. Right. Um, it does come back to our earlier point, though, to the extent that. Bangladeshi workers don't have many alternatives to working in factories. These natural forces are weaker. And the problem for me is that there's always this temptation to impose Western standards of every aspect of the labor market, both right. wages, health, safety, and say your factory should be as safe as ours. Your wages right. should be as high as ours. And as you point out, that's a lovely idea, but it punishes – it basically means there won't be any factories there. Right, right. And it's also, I think it's also, um, uh, it, it, it's, it's again deflecting attention away from the people who are actually responsible for maintaining good safety standards, right? And those people happen to be local governments, national governments, local governments, and uh, the managers and owners of these factories themselves. So we're also misallocating responsibility by this kind of misguided consumerism. I mean, but there's been some interesting. I, I don't know what the what the full effects have been, and a lot of it's cosmetic. I'm sure there have been attempts in Amer- by American companies, multinationals generally, to improve working conditions in their factories in, say, China. Uh, you know, their organizations, so-called voluntary organizations, they're semi-voluntary. They're they've they're basically um, industry consortia that have been started in in a way to particularly to deflect the possibility yeah. of legislation or or other kinds of pressure. And yeah. I, I don't know whether they've been effective or not. Um, uh, you know, I, I do understand you – know, it's a very interesting issue. I often get asked this as a, as a free trader, would I be willing to trade with slate with, with products made by slaves? And the answer is – unless it, the answer is, no, I don't want to buy products made by slaves unless it – makes them better off to buy the products, in which case I probably right. do want to buy them. I, right. There are a lot of people around the world who have horrible working conditions and very tough lives. And if, if they want to improve their lives and the lives of their children, by far the best force is to let trade happen. But um, I understand the natural impulse people have to try to help that along. The only question I always have is that it actually works. If we make factories in China – adhere more to Western standards or in the rest of the world adhere to Western standards, does it help them or hurt them? And I think that's an empirical question. Mm. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I've not seen a careful study of whether toy makers and other and clothing manufacturers and technology uh, devices that are made in Asia, whether their public attempts to make those factories better have actually done anything? Is it just cosmetic? Is it just you know, window dressing or is it actually making a difference? I, I do know that trade has made a difference in those workers' lives. The standard of living definitely. in a lot of those countries is a much higher. Definitely. It's also at what stage uh, these, stand, these types of standards are brought in um, because uh, if so, – so now wages have been increasing in China. So uh, it 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 and 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 health and safety conditions have been improving, right? But that it's like you could easily argue that that's the natural mechanism of the market that which has been driven by export led growth. I think that's true. Um, you know, the alternative hypothesis, I guess, is that it's a pittance relative to what they uh, we might be able to do for them if we did something else. Uh, you know. I, I'm of the view that trade in general has been extremely beneficial to the poorest people of the world, but there are skeptics who argue that the system's rigged to help you know, rich, powerful countries exploit poor countries. And yet, those poor countries are doing increasingly better. Their their workers and, and citizens have higher and higher standards of living. They're still awful by our standards, and that's a tragedy. Yeah. 
But yeah. I don't think we have a very effective way to do better than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. I think, I think we, I think we are actually on the same page on this. Let's turn to the issue of um, the so-called rising powers. What does that phrase mean, and uh, what do you think are the key issues that surround uh, surround those nations? Okay. Um, so there's. Uh, so there are lots of different ways in which you can think of them as in which you can conceptualize rising powers. And that's partly also why we have uh, these uh, various categorization taxonomy games, right? Uh, so is it the breaks? Is it the next 11? You know, which, which group of countries is included? Explain, or, explain what the bricks are. Sure. Uh, so that this uh, this is Brazil, Russia, India, and China, and this was the concept and the acronym was coined by Jim O'Neill from Goldman Sachs as the big emerging markets um, of uh, of the century, and a lot of a lot of a lot of attention has been paid to. Which which will be the next big growth market to the big emerging markets, and this varies according to the financial climate, other uh, various types of transient factors, and so forth. For me, for me, the the way I think about rising powers is those powers that have uh, what is effectively veto player status. So. Um, you can't really get an international agreement unless these these powers are on board. So these are the powers that have the ability to walk away from a negotiation and thereby completely derail it. And it depends on which issue area you're looking at. So in some in in some issue areas, if it's energy, you might say Russia is a rising power. In a lot of issue areas, you would say it's not. Brazil, India, and China, for me, are the constants, the constants of rising powers across multilateral regimes. And you had a second, you had a second question to this. You asked me, what are the rising powers, and what are the kinds of debates? Yeah, what are so, the key issues that 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 surround their their rise? Uh, sure. So. Um, so there are there there are two there there there. Two sets of key issues that we discuss quite a bit um, in both academic and and policy worlds. So the first one has to do with uh, is is the one is the more political science perspective, which which has to do with are these revisionist powers or are they status quo powers? Yeah, will explain they, that. What does that mean? So will these powers uh, come up with uh, radical, rev even possibly revolutionary visions of global order, and demand a complete um, uh, a complete overhaul of the established system of governance that we have, or are these uh, or are these powers that can work within the system and are rel and and while they are still seeking to improve their influence. Across issue areas, they they will still broadly fit within the re existing regimes. So that's like one set of interesting questions about uh, that's coming from the political science side, and then we've got a lot of analysis coming from um, economists, and particularly the kind of the Goldman Sachs type economists, but also academics uh, on on the growth patterns that we are witnessing in these rising powers and how sustainable are they and where do the vulnerabilities lie and so forth. And one of the, these are, so these are, these are the two sort of dominant streams in the debates. But one of the, one of the issues that I thought was quite important was that both these sets of accounts seem to be witness, seem to be missing out on a, on a very crucial aspect of the power transition that we're witnessing today, which is which is this, that power transition is seldom solely a function of growing economic or military prowess. And a lot depends on how power is exercised in relation to whom and how action and reaction are interpreted and misinterpreted. 
So, so the bit that to me has been missing from both the economic and the political side is that is, is the story about the rise of new powers, which is a story fundamentally of bargaining and negotiation. Don't you find that? I mean, I find that very strange. Um, I understand your point, but let's let's talk about it for a minute. Let's take China, which is a you know the, a dramatic example. Clearly belongs on the list, and I agree with you. It seems like to me that Russia's sort of on the list is sort of a I don't know a, a, a bone to throw to the old regime and their their former uh, <laughs> military and political strength. But China clearly is a rising power in every dimension. Militarily, yeah. economically, and in this uh, issues issues of worldwide governance of, of various kinds of, on international military issues, economic issues, trade issues, patent, intellectual property issues, etc. So China, I understand, clearly has you know it, it's it's growing economic success has implications for its military potential, and that raises issues for Asian countries, but also for countries elsewhere. On the economic front, why wouldn't we just uh, – let me ask it differently. Wouldn't we, better, wouldn't we be better off if we lived in a world without these various international organizations, which on paper have the opportunity to make the world a pl- better place? And I'm considering the, the, the three obvious ones, the, the World Trade Organization, the IMF, and uh, the World Bank. Those are the places where countries come together to make economic decisions of, of, of many kinds. Wouldn't the world be a better place if we just said, um, look, we think this, this whole negotiation and bargaining issue which you raise, it's just, it's just not beneficial to the people of the world. Let's just open up our borders. Uh, a bunch of the nations who, who understand the virtues of trade, let's open up our borders Let's get rid of all these really thick books, and let's get uh, – that have all the trade minutia of what's uh, – how do you define peanut butter, and let's and, – and what's a T-shirt. And let's instead just say uh, trade's good, and the nations that want to enrich themselves and help others by trading freely shall, shall do so, and let the others impoverish themselves and, um, and miss the game. Why shouldn't we do that? Why shouldn't we be pushing – instead of pushing for another WTO round – uh, that would integrate these rising powers. Why don't we just say, uh, let's have free trade? Um, I think it would, if if the world, if we if we were able to get a world where countries could that easily say, you know, let's open up our borders and let's trade with each other, I think that would be great. But I don't think we live in a world like that at all. So we we live in a world where uh, a country, we, one, we live in a world that is still extremely mercantilist. Um, two, we live in a world where we need access to the markets of these rising powers, especially with the world in, especially with the world in, in, you know, the, the, the financial crisis that we've, that we've been in. So we need access to the markets. So we need to the Chinese markets, the Indian markets, to the Brazilian markets. And if these countries aren't on board, it's going to be a real problem. And in terms of your point about, you know, what, you know, why do we need the WTO? I mean, for for one, well, for one very important reason why we need the WTO is, um, and we need this new round, is to prevent the return of protectionism. The and right now, as so, so right now, it looks it, mm, we have countries that. Um, right now, we haven't seen the kind of 1930s style protectionism. But you only have to read, you know, global trade alert reports, for example, to see the various ways in which protectionism has been on the rise. And one of the things that the WTO does do is it prevents. Uh, the resurgence of protectionism, the new round would offer very valuable insurance against more protectionism over things like water in the tariffs. So countries have um, a, a big difference between their applied rates and bound rates of tariffs, and they can actually legally, within the WTO's rules, increase their tariffs very significantly to the bound rates. So having this new round, concluding this new round would help us ensure that that doesn't happen. 
And we also have the very important dispute settlement mechanism. So those are the reasons why I think it's still very important to maintain institutions. But there's another reason why I think it's really important to maintain institutions. It's because um, it's, it's the argument that constructivist thinkers make about socialization into international regimes. And the argument here is the more a country becomes a member of a regime and the more it's given greater voice in the regime, uh, the more it also starts buying into some of its values. So we might, so if we go into the debate of status quo versus revisionist powers, if socialization in regimes works, then we are likely to see more satiated powers than revisionist powers. Yeah, I just don't see any evidence for that. I mean, it's a nice th- it's a nice theory. I just don't could be true. Um, and I don't disagree with you by the way. I do think the WTO has had some perhaps positive impact on encouraging uh tr- trade to be more open. What it's also done is um created an impression that may be true that uh very powerful organizations, very powerful forces, farmers, uh, multinationals with copyright um, power and and cur- under current law, current legislation, uh, intellectual property power under current legislation, that they use the WTO as a way to keep anything from changing. It helps uh, – it gives the illusion that we're moving toward free trade, but it also creates a forum where they can hang out and, and uh, interact across international borders, which strikes me as a really bad idea. I guess I'm asking a different question, which is – as an economist who is an advocate for free trade, I think there's a temptation all the time for us to accept what is, you know, that the glass is is half full. It's this is better than nothing. Yes, free trade, real free trade would be better, but managed, so-called managed trade, is, is at least a step in the right direction. And it's not obvious that may be true in some meta sense of political reality, but it seems to me those of us who want to see open capital, uh, moving cap- capital across borders, moving goods across borders, moving people across borders uh, freely. We should advocate for that. And um, I think to some extent, to the extent that we uh, play the game, we are conspiring with those who actually are going in the other direction and are using this as a cover uh, for their own self-interest. And I, I don't – it's just not obvious to me that the WTO really is a force for freer trade. I don't think self-interest is going to disappear if you remove the WTO. You're still going to get countries pushing for their self-interest. Having the WTO in there mitigates against some of the worst excesses of power. So if you're a small, in fact, I I disagree with you on your point about this is a forum where, uh, you know, the powerful uh, multinationals, holders of intellectual property rights are the the players that manage to exercise influence. I yeah, make me feel very, better. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I, I disagree very. I disagree very strongly with you on this. Um, and just two examples. Um, a good uh, a good example of this is the TRIPS and Public Health Declaration. So explain what uh, TRIPS is. Uh, trade related intellectual property rights. Uh, it's one of the agreements of the WTO. It was one of the most uh, uh, it was one of the most controversial agreements of the Uruguay round and developing countries really did not want to sign on to it. Uh, and uh, they were, they, they, according, to, um, according to many accounts, they agreed to sign on to the TRIPS agreement partly because they thought it was a very much narrower agreement than it turned out to be. They thought it would deal only with counterfeit products as opposed to several other forms of intellectual property, including patents, which it does. Um, And ultimately, they were brought around by what came to be known as the grand bargain. So, and this is one of the reasons why rounds are important, because you are able to get uh, big trade-offs across issue areas. In this case, the trade-off was developed countries were pushing for bringing, particularly the U.S., um, was pushing for bringing in trips into the into the Uruguay round, and in return, developing countries were told uh, some of the issues that they cared about, such as agriculture, would be brought in. But anyway, going back to the trips and public health declaration, uh, 
under uh, under the AIDS pandemic in Africa, the some of the least developed countries thought that they would be uh, would be able to import medicines that were being manufactured in Brazil and India because they were much cheaper. And they were told they could not do so under the TRIPS regime. Because they violated patent and copyright, yeah. et cetera, intellectual yeah. property. Yeah, exactly. Uh, patents in particular, that bit. Yeah, not copyright, patents. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, they were told they, they, there was no way this was going to happen. And, uh, and the uh, U.S. pharmaceutical companies began a huge uh, lobbying effort against them. And in return... Uh, a coalition emerged of the least developed countries, what uh, we call emerging markets or rising powers, so countries like Brazil and India, um, and northern NGOs, as well as southern non-governmental organizations. And they lobbied really hard to allow parallel imports. And now this is allowed under the regime. So they are able to import medicines when facing such a pandemic. And that's a good example of how the very poor were able to exercise voice and influence in the WTO. But there's another, the, the, the other really, you only have to speak to um, uh, not just the Brazils and the Indias of the developing world, but also the smaller, least developed countries in the WTO that are members of the organization today. And you will get quite um, uh, 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 you you will get quite a story of empowerment because just in terms of how process works, like it, the GATT, that used, it used to be known as the rich man's club and decisions were made between the EU, US, Canada and Japan and developing countries had very little say. And today we have something called the new quad where Brazil and India and more recently China have become the constants. These countries work in coalitions with least developed countries least de and other developing countries, which have much greater voice in the regime. And in fact, one of, you could argue that one of the reasons why the WTO is actually so badly deadlocked now is because this is not a power-led organization. It's a very pluralistic organization where it has become very difficult to, to get consensus. But yeah, those I, are things Process and substance. I think the WTO is not a story of uh, the power, the powerful getting their own way. Well, I'll feel better when um, when we see more um, more of those agricultural concessions. I'll, I'll take. <laughs> I'll accept your point. I have to confess, part of me thinks that the main purpose of the WTO is to allow trade economists, negotiators, lawyers to fly around the world and hang out with each other. But um, I am a little bit cynical and a little bit pessimistic. Um, you did point out, and I think it's an interesting issue, uh, there has been some increase in protectionism in the response to the Great Recession, but it's striking to me how little there has been, both uh, certainly in the United States. You know, we have uh, yeah. President Obama. I think he put, um, he put some large tariffs on Chinese tires, yeah. but that's a, a symbolic – I think it's a really bad idea, but it, it was a symbolic um, – measure. Uh, it, it did threaten to start a trade war with China. It doesn't seem to have, which is thank, thank God for that. But um, it's striking to me how little worldwide protectionism there has been in contrast to the, to the 1930s and yeah. the Great Depression. And that could be just because the Great Recession is milder, but I think it, it probably is due to other reasons. So why don't we close and, and why don't you talk about why I think that's true? Well, I think that's that's a nice way to close because in my view, one of the reasons why we haven't seen a trade war between the U.S. and China um, and the complete proliferation of high levels of protection, protectionism is because of the WTO. You do, this is one of the very few organizations. This is the only organization that has a very uh, that has an enforceable dispute settlement mechanism. And if you increase, if, if you slap on tariffs against your trading partner, chances are if they are able to use the DSM and increasingly countries from the developing world are. What's the DSM? Sorry, the dispute settlement mechanism. I'm sorry. Uh, so okay. the, dispute, the dispute settlement mechanism. 
uh, is a very powerful tool, not in the hands of not just the big, but also the small. And uh, we know that if we hike up our um, our trade barriers against our partners, chances are they will go to the dispute settlement mechanism and will get some kinds of sanctions raised against you. So I think the WTO has it the the fact that we haven't seen the resurgence of protectionism on the scale that we saw in the 1930s in one of the very important reasons is the fact that we do have an organization like the WTO. My guest has been Amrita Narlikar of the University of Cambridge. Amrita, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you very much. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.